Good morning. Today's scripture is Ephesians chapter 6, verses 12, pardon, 10 through 12. The armor of God. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. Put in the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Good morning, again. Uh, My name is Sam. Pastor Tommy is out today, so I'm your substitute preacher. Uh, This morning, uh, we will look at Satan and and what the biblical authors uh, understood of spiritual warfare. Uh, When you look at the Bible, there's a very holistic way of of looking at it, from Old Testament to New Testament and the the writers, uh, from the prophets to Torah to to the Gospels and the letters. And, And there is a specific way that they understood the spiritual and the heavenlies, and and the very holistic way of understanding what is happening in this sort of cosmic warfare. And um, I think it is fascinating content, and those who consider spiritual warfare all about, you know, demon possessions and ready to cast out demons out by specific names, I think they would need to reconsider a few things based on this perspective. Um, And I think also those who think Satan is a metaphor Uh, may also need to reconsider a few things as well. There's something for everyone. It's not either the devil or just natural material. The Bible gives us something different and that things are much more connected than I think we realize. Um, That many times it's physical and spiritual. It's visible and invisible. And it's all very much wrapped up together than we understand. And so I'm going to go through several narratives this morning, and we will end with the passage uh, that was read uh, just now and look at what Paul meant by powers and authority. And there may be a sense that all of this seems pretty far off, uh, but it's going to help us to understand what Jesus meant by the powers of this world. And, And Paul, who goes into very great lengths to talk about the powers in a very similar fashion. Um, the teaching today, there's going to there's gonna be a lot going on. It's like a, a Korean drama or a telenovela, you know, like the Spanish soap opera. Um, so, you know, be alert. You got to stay alert and chug that coffee. Um, no one dies, but I guess, I mean, Jesus does die and come back. So there's that. No one has amnesia, though. So um, don't worry if you miss something. The podcast is always there, so you can go back and uh, listen to it. So let's pray and get started. So God... Thank you for this community. Um, Thank you for our friends and family. Thank you, Jesus, for uh, helping us to see every day uh, with a new light uh, your heart for your people. I pray uh, that I will speak with clarity. Help me. And even when my words fail, oh God, that people will still listen to what your heart uh, is all about. And so I pray all of this, and and that that people will be um, open, their hearts will be open to hear what you have to say. In the name of Jesus, amen. All right. So in the beginning of Genesis, uh, God created the heavens and the earth, right? Heavens and the earth. And in the ancient world, chaos 
was sort of understood as this primal state where earth, skies, and seas sort of merged. So plainly speaking, chaos was uh, sort of the opposite of God's creation. Uh, and, and God's creation, the cosmos, being sort of this ordered whole. And so what God does is not just create, but bring to order uh, where there was none. Uh, as, as God is creating the heavens and the earth. In Genesis chapter 2, uh, verse 1, we see this language of heavenly beings introduced. Um, Thus the heavens and the earth were completed and all their hosts. In NIV, uh, the word host is actually said vast array, and sometimes uh, in other translations you'll see the word multitudes of heaven. Um, but most of the time in other translations you'll see this word host, and there are other areas of the Bible that talks about the host of heaven or heavenly host, um, including in the New Testament. We see this word in Luke chapter 2 uh, or surrounding the Jesus' birth uh, where uh, suddenly a great company of heavenly hosts appeared with the angel, this is to the, the shepherds, praising God and saying, glory to God the highest, in the highest heaven, and on earth peace to those of whom he favor rests. So the host of heaven, ancients understood it to be a created spiritual beings. And similar to how humans have a role to play and having us having sort of delegated authority, Spiritual beings also had a role to play and had some sense of delegated authority, like how humans were told to be fruitful and multiply and to take care of the land. These spiritual beings had a role. And we see in Psalm 103, uh, it says uh, from verse 19 to 21, the Lord has established his throne in heaven and his kingdom rule over all. Praise the Lord, you his angels, you mighty ones, you who, uh, ones who do his bidding. Who obey his word. Praise the Lord, all his heavenly hosts, you his servants who do his will. We also see this in 1 King uh, chapter 22, verse 19. Micaiah continued, Therefore, hear the word of the Lord. I saw the Lord sitting on his throne with all the multitudes of heaven standing around him on his right and his left. So we see this, a lot of these imagery and descriptions of how these spiritual beings were subjects to God and God sitting on his throne as a king, they were like assistants. And, and well, actually, some were regional rulers. And if you want to insert, I guess, the office analogy, some were assistant to the regional manager <laughs> in that sense. And actually, that, that fits perfectly, as you'll see. Um, God sits on his throne, and very much like how the ancients understood power structures, or maybe how we understand corporate structures, uh, he would have these spiritual beings or angels or angelic beings uh, that had delegated authority, just like how God delegated authority to mankind to look over uh, the land and the earth and the, his creation. They had authority to look over certain regions or nations by God's authority. Another way that the people of ancient Near East understood spiritual beings to be stars and planets. We understand them as sort of this gas from far away. Um, and, and it was actually a very common understanding in the ancient world to understand stars sort of this way. And, and many ancient world, uh, people of the ancient world, worshiped these created spiritual beings as gods. And as they were thinking and their thought that, you know, this is the stars. And, and we'll come back to the idea regarding uh, the morning star when we talk about Satan. Um, so Genesis 1 and 2 is beginning, right? It's, it's sort of uh, how God made the cosmos. 
and, and created humans. However, from uh, chapter 3 to 11, we see a different narrative. We see this relationship breaking down. We see this continuous story of rebellion, not only from humans, but also spiritual beings. And in these narratives, the world is being tragically corrupted. Tragically corrupted by this rebellion between humans and spiritual beings. Now, to show you this, let's go back to Genesis. Adam and Eve are in the Garden of Eden, this place where heaven and earth sort of overlap. And what that means is there was harmony, uh, the relationship that was unbroken. But something happens in Genesis 3 that was very interesting. Now, the serpent was more crafty than any beast of the field. That's important. For which the Lord had, God had made. And he said to the woman, Indeed, has God said, You shall not eat from any tree of the garden. The woman said to the serpent, From the fruit of the trees of the garden we may eat, but from the fruit of the tree which is in the middle of the garden, God has said, You shall not eat from it or touch it or you will die. For God knows that in the day you eat from it, your eyes will be open, you will be like God, knowing good and evil. When the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was delight to the eyes and that the tree was desirable to make one wise, she took from its fruit and ate, and she also gave it to her husband with her, and he ate. Now, what's wrong with this picture? First of all, we have a talking snake. Uh, secondly, the creature is described strangely as crafty, crafty than any beast of the field. And the writer is trying to tell us this is not your average snake. Many Christians understand Genesis 3 as sort of this fall narrative, primary fall narrative, but I, when you look at it within Genesis chapter 3 to 11, uh, the writer tells multiple stories of corruption of humanity that continues to grow with the following narrative of Cain. In the following chapter, Cain and Abel are introduced. They're the sons of Adam and Eve. And Cain worked the ground, and he was a farmer. Abel was, you know, had the flocks and was a shepherd. Uh, and they both brought offerings. Uh, so Cain offers fruits from his farm. Abel brings meat. And chapter 4 says God favored Abel's offering over Cain's. And Cain became upset and murdered his brother in the field. Before that, though, before the murder, God says to Cain, if you do what is right, will you not be accepted? But if you do not do what is right, sin is crouching at your door. It desires to have you, but you must rule over it. Now, what's interesting here is that before Cain murdered his brother, God describes sin crouching at the door that, that sin desires for Cain, and the sin is very much depicted as a beast ready to devour him. This evil that consumes Cain is described in a similar way, actually, as the snake in the garden who is more crafty than any beast of the field. So there's, there's this connection where both Eve and Cain uh, gave in to sin, to the beast, and at both times they were being manipulated and taken advantage of. Now... Chapter 6, we read something really bizarre. Uh, we read that humans begin to multiply. That's not the strange part, if you know the birds and the bees, which is great if you do. Congratulations. But then in verse 2, it says, The sons of God saw that the daughters of humans were beautiful and married any of them they chose. And verse 5, it says, The Lord saw how wicked humans have become, and every thought of the human heart was evil. 
And now you might say, I'm in the strange section of the Bible again. And we, so we need some context. Uh, the sons of God, or sons of Elohim, was actually a pretty standard way in the Hebrew text to describe spiritual beings. It doesn't necessarily mean they were actually son of God, like God had kids. Um, it's uh, spiritual kids. It's not saying that, you know, uh, they were God, like how we understand God with a capital G. It's sort of like saying they're in the same category or class. Uh, so today, for example, we may use like, uh, a, a politician or a, or a famous athlete or a town hero as son of Tampa Bay or daughter of Tampa Bay. It's not necessarily they're actually from the city, right? It's just they're from, uh, well, they're not a daughter or physically daughter or, or it's metaphor, right, for us uh, that you're part of that class. I guess you can think of like sons of anarchy as well. Uh, so sort of that in that same manner, uh, sons of God was used to describe created spiritual beings and we see that in the Hebrew Bible, the sons of Elohim and sons of God was used as uh, sort of this sense of heavenly host that I mentioned earlier. Now, what's up with these beings having babies with daughters of human? What you see here is an upside down way of retelling the story of what happened in the Garden of Eve. In verse 2, it says, the sons of God saw, saw that the daughters of human were beautiful. And the translators are actually trying to help us out here. But the word beautiful is the, actually the same word when Eve saw the fruit of the tree and saw that it was good, right? And, and that she desired for the fruit of the tree. So the spiritual beings that have gone rogue saw that the daughters of human were good and desired them and took wives for themselves. So instead of Eve, the woman taking what is good in her own eyes, right? Because of the lies and the talking serpent. In Genesis chapter 6, what we have is spiritual beings who take the daughters of men that they consider good in their eyes. And so again, what's happening here is this sort of flipping of the narrative. It's a very ancient way of telling us things are getting worse. Things have not improved. Not only did the humans God created continue to break away uh, from the relationship and covenant with God, what appears from the writers of, uh, of Genesis is that there's a direct connection with what is happening uh, with the spiritual beings as well. Now, we don't have a time to look at the rest of the chapters, uh, but in Genesis 11, that seems to be the place where it's sort of hitting this high note regarding the fall uh, narrative. The ancient writers gives us this story of people coming together to build the Tower of Babel revealing it and, and, and this the city that will reach the heavens and it ends up revealing that this is the origin story of babylon and the scattered nations who worship idol gods now we see in isaiah 14 which sounds like a commentary uh, on what happened in genesis with the tower of babel how you have fallen from heaven morning star son of dawn here's the star reference you have been cast down to earth you who once laid low to the nations you will you said in your heart i will ascend to the heavens i will raise my throne above the stars of god i will sit enthroned on the mountain of assembly on the utmost heights of mount zephon i will ascend above the tops of the clouds and i will make myself like the Most High. Reference, this is referencing the story of uh, the Tower of Babel. And what you are brought down to the realms of the dead, to the depths of the pit. 
So taking from this passage here and others like in an Old Testament, the spiritual beings that God created and were given delegated authority similar to humans and, and being given a role to play and having authority, they both wanted more. Humans who were created in his, his image, we don't see that for the spiritual beings, uh, and God's desire was to partner with humanity as his image-bearing representative so that we can rule over creation on his behalf. However, humans wanted their own ways. They wanted more. And, and these narratives show how the desire was used for humans to be deceived by spiritual beings. And they wanted more. They wanted much more and wanted to be God themselves. Th these spiritual beings wanted to be God themselves and, and, and uh, be worshipped by humans. The authority and powers they were given was not enough. And, and this is all sort of intertwined. Now... Why the Tower of Babel story is important is because throughout the Bible, Babylon continues to be a symbol of rebellion, an opposing force against God. And that's going to be important for us in our understanding of what Paul and Jesus was talking about uh, when they mentioned powers of this earth. But the idea is that from chapter 3 to 11 in Genesis, there is this narrative of humans and, and spiritual beings rebelling uh, and opposing God and his creation, and in many ways sort of descending back into chaos in a very anti-creation kind of way. Now, before we go into the New Testament, I do want to share one more passage. Uh, it's in uh, Daniel uh, chapter 10. And the story gives us an insight of what's happening uh, in the heavenly or spiritual realm and how that is connected to the physical world. And the story in Daniel chapter 10 is probably the best example of this sort of joint reality. In Daniel, Israel is struggling to stay faithful to God. Uh, and Daniel is praying and fasting uh, for his people and he fasts for three weeks. Then an angel appears to him and tells him that he has been trying to uh, answer his prayer uh, but that the prince of Persia, a spiritual being, was resisting him. And then Michael, who's sort of a chief angel or archangel, and, and at that time, uh, they believed Michael was sort of the, the guardian angel over Jerusalem, people of the, uh, you know, of the, of the Bible and, and their region, and, and came to help this angel deliver this message. Now, for us modern folks, this seems super bizarre. But here's this intriguing, apocalyptic chapter where Daniel seemed to getting a glimpse of what's happening in the heavenly realm, impacting the earthly realm. And that there were these spiritual beings and forces opposing the will of God, and God wanted to give Daniel an answer as soon as he was praying, but the response was held back because of the cosmic warfare that was going on. Now, while modern Western believers tend to separate and I think divorce uh, spiritual realm from the natural realm, ancient people during this time and region, uh, including the ancient Jews, had more of a holistic perspective. The authors of the Bible, including Jesus and Paul, as soon as we shall see, seem to view earthly and, and heavenly battles as one and the same. To put it another way, uh, what's happening in the material world and what's happening spiritually is one of the same coin, right? Two sides of the same coin. Now, let's turn to the New Testament. Jesus is declaring uh, kingdom is at hand. And he's healing people. And, and, and he's giving his sermon on the mount. But at the same time, he is also casting demons out. 
And, and what's happening is there's a bigger thing uh, happening in the background. It seems from his ministry to arrest and to death and a, a resurrection, uh, you see this cosmic warfare that Jesus was doing against the evil powers of this world. Check out Luke chapter 22 uh, when Jesus was arrested. Then Jesus said to the chief priests and officers of the temple and elders who had come against him, have you come out with swords and clubs as you would against a robber? While I was with you daily in the temple, you did not lay hands on me, but this hour and the power of darkness are yours. Jesus viewed his confrontation with the leaders of Jerusalem as battle against the power of darkness. We may simply see this as humans. We may simply see it as, as he was being opposed and detained by the religious leaders and crucified by Romans. But the way Jesus sees it, it's a battle against the power of darkness and spiritual evil in this world. In John chapter two, 12, uh, verse 31, he says, Now is the time for judgment of this world. Now the prince of this world will be driven out. N.T. Wright, uh, a New Testament scholar, and uh, Jesus and the victory of God, uh, in, the, in the book, he says, One of the key elements in Jesus' perception of his task was therefore his redefinition of who the real enemy was. The pagan hordes surrounding Israel, including Rome, was not the actual foe or of the people of Yahweh. Standing behind the whole problem of Israel's exile was the dark power known in some Old Testament traditions as Satan, the accuser. The struggle that was coming to a head was therefore cosmic. Like we saw in Daniel, Jesus is looking at it from a very different perspective than purely human or material. It's a very different, uh, and, and he views corrupt human kingdoms as a manifestation of the cosmic spiritual evil. So now, Paul starts to explain all of this, and he's probably one of the better persons or best person to explain this because he understood the prophets, he understood Torah, he understood the writings in the Old Testament or what we consider Old Testament. He understood Jesus' ministry and what he did, the life, death, and resurrection, and he understood Jesus as the full revelation of God. And he says in Ephesians uh, chapter 6, verse 10 to 12, Finally, be strong in the Lord and his mighty power. Put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the dark powers of the, this world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. So when Paul mentions powers and authority and, and evil spiritual forces in the heavenly realm... And in Ephesians, and he does it in many different uh, letters of the, uh, in the New Testament, he's pretty much tracking with all of this and all that has been going on within Genesis and the books of the Bible in, in the Old Testament. And he's also bringing this to a whole new light. Um, in these passages and others, Paul is actually speaking as if the spiritual and human power structures were the same forces. And Paul is showing you that it's not that it's just corrupt nations, that, that there is spiritual evil. It's the systematic institutions. It's the national, national institutions like Rome and the religious establishment like the temple leaders that were part of the spiritual forces and, and powers that were opposing Jesus and God's creation. Now, for those who think spiritual warfare is all about casting out demons uh, from people, 
And, and I, I've known a lot of these people. I come from a very Pentecostal charismatic background. And, you, you, you know, you're just, some people are just infatuated with all the names of the Satan and demons. And, and Paul is saying that's not the right perspective. Um, about 20 years ago, uh, at a Christian camp, um, I think it was like a you know, night service, and one of the camp counselors were about to give her testimony. But she was like pretty um, nervous, super nervous. So, you know, about 15 or so uh, other camp staff surrounded her and prayed for her. Now, I wasn't praying because I was talking to a friend of mine about like 15, about maybe 30 feet away. And uh, she was just telling me, you know, they had an incident uh, within their family and the dad was taking no chances. So he gave all the the daughters of the family uh, pepper spray. I've never saw or played with pepper spray. And so I was just like, can I see the pepper spray? And she's like, sure. And he's like, is it okay if I spray just a little bit? And, and this is the brilliant Sam we're talking about. And so I just do a little, you know, like little, just little against the wall. And unbeknownst to me, the, the wind started going that way. And people started coughing as they were praying for this girl who were about to give her testimony. And one, I mean, literally, people were like coughing and, and rubbing their eyes. And, and one person yelled out, it's the attack of the Satan. <laughs> and I didn't realize what was going on after, you know, until after like 30 seconds. I'm like, oh, it was me. <laughs> it wasn't Satan. And it was Sam with, with the mace. Um, I didn't have the heart to tell them right then, but I eventually told them. They forgave me. Uh, but, you know, everyone knows I'm a, I'm a tactile learner. So, all right. So uh, that's more of an story. If, and I wasn't going to tell you a story about demon possession. I mean, th- there's literally some Christians, though, that do chase uh, demons in such a big deal and make way too big of a deal um, in terms of casting out, delivering people from um, these demonic influences. And, and I do believe that it's real, and I have experiences with them, and I have seen people physically healed uh, sometimes from these uh, deliverances. Um, at the same time, though, some of it is a you know, little too much drama, and, and some people are just too, way too much of a, uh, putting a too much emphasis on demon activity. Um, and, and sometimes people take no personal responsibility Uh, and just blame it all on the devil. Now, if you consider spiritual warfare to be only about that, you're in danger of missing the big picture and reality that the writers of the Bible are trying to tell us. Many Christians think spiritual warfare as demonic activity, this very non-human way, non-human expression. But what Paul is trying to tell us is that it looks very human. Sorry. It looks very human in power structures and systems. Think about this. I want you to think about Nazi Germany. It was only 75 years ago or less, 74, 75 years ago that they've surrendered. By the time that they were finished, 6 million Jews were murdered in gas chambers. And someone thought this was the right thing to do. At at the end, two-thirds of the Jewish population in Europe were murdered. And you should call this evil. You should call this demonic. And Paul is trying to tell us that Jesus confronted the dark powers of this world, and it was dark powers in terms of spiritual forces, but it was also the human forces that we did not see and realize. At the same time, though, 
to those who believe there is no such thing as Satan, and the real problem is created by humans, and the evil is just us, uh, like sort of we're looking at a mirror, I think that's a mistake as well. I can sympathize with people saying that this is all a metaphor, but I don't think that's how the biblical authors are actually portraying the evil spiritual forces. And for me, it's actually mainly the way Jesus and Paul talked about Satan as if he was real and independent from humans. Jesus described Satan as the prince of this world, and their perspective was that they viewed Satan as sort of this functional ruler on earth and, and the evil spiritual being independent from humans where he continues to oppose God by enslaving humanity with false gods and idols. Think about it. I mean, some of the things that we struggle with in terms of uh, uh, um, greed, uh, uh, money, uh, sex, and just this uh, selfishness, these were gods in the Old Testament, in the ancient world, right? The god of mammon and god of fertility. So, you know, where they considered idols and actual gods, we are struggling with something that is also real in terms of the sort of uh, idols in our lives, so let's take a look at the names, and, and I understand how some may consider all these metaphors because the devil and Satan, they're not actually real names. They're all descriptions. They're all sort of this functioning title, like the regional manager. And in biblical Hebrew, Satan means adversary. Uh, the devil is a Greek word that means slander, to slander. Even Lucifer is actually a Latin translation of the morning star. And so there are all titles, and the devil really doesn't have a name. And it's not like they're scared to call him, like, you know, a real, his real name, like Lord Voldemort in uh, Harry Potter. I think the reason is that they did not want to give this being a dignity of having a proper name. Let me open this up a little bit more. There was a, a shooting that happened in Virginia about a month ago. And what you saw was law enforcement and media and others uh, rarely put the shooter's face up there. And they rarely actually mentioned his name. They, they continually mentioned him as the attacker, the gunman, uh, the shooter, but they rarely said his name. And, and instead, they were more focused on the victims and the heroes of these shootings. It was very different than what happened, I think, uh, in Columbine and you know, what we've experienced 10, 20 years ago. By not naming this person, you're not giving this person, you're not glorifying this, this, this man. You're not glorifying what he did. And you're not giving this person dignity. And I think that's what's happening in the Bible. By only giving this evil a description. And so going back to those who think that this is all just humans and problems are created by us and evil is us and there are no spiritual evil... Uh, being going against God, I want you to think about this, and, and, and I think you can be played to think this way, and please listen carefully. The danger I think you're in is that you will ultimately blame humans or make humans your enemy or blame God for the evil in this world, or you will do both. Going back to what Paul says in Ephesians uh, chapter 6, he says, for our struggle is not against flesh and blood. Our struggle is not against flesh and blood. So we have an enemy that is very real, 
that is very real. Uh, the temptation for us modern people is to sort of divorce the spiritual from the physical and the material world. But the biblical authors are showing us there's a more holistic way of viewing this. Humans are not the enemy. We're not fighting other humans. They're uh, image-carrying, God-image-carrying uh, beings that, that are supposed to be a representative of this world and represent God. We're not fighting other humans, but against the powers of this world. And it's very easy to make other people the enemy and not realize that people are being played uh, by corrupt spiritual forces back into chaos. Um, in his book, uh, Gregory Boyd, uh, called Understanding Spiritual Warfare, uh, says this, I do believe there are serious ramifications as the understanding of the powers become meaningless and that we lose conviction that we have any real enemies that we oppose. And what happens is that each time without knowing make other humans our, as our enemies. We are to resist evil, revolt against the powers, and we are never to play into the hands of the enemy by playing their game. We are to remember that our struggle is never against flesh and blood, humans, but against the powers that perpetually try to deceive us into thinking that our enemies are humans, flesh and blood. Now, the central reason the Son of God came to the world was to defeat the dark prince of the world, to destroy the work of the devil by defeating sin and death, right? Think about this. Jesus continued to side with the poor and the oppressed. And what he was doing was going against the cosmic powers that fuel social political systems that privilege the few by oppressing others. When Jesus praised the faith of the Roman centurion or the Samaritans as heroes in contrast to the Jewish leaders, he was going against the powers that fuel social political systems that privilege some over others on the basis of their race. The way Jesus treated women women was going against the oppressive powers that fuel social and religious systems that empower men and dehumanize women. Jesus continually resisted all attempts to lure him into heated nationalism of his day by going against the powers that support national ideologies and allegiances that were idolatrous. If you're only thinking of supernatural and evil only in this spiritual way that, that is sort of devoid of what's happening physically on earth, you're missing the evil that is right at your nose. The evil that's happening in your city, the evil that's happening in your country, the systematic racism that is happening with unequal education, financial opportunities that is happening because of the color of your skin or where you were born. The chaos that's happening at the borders and the children being separated from their parents and unjustly treated, it would be very easy to throw that out as evil when you're only focused on superficial morality. Think of the pharmacy companies that make greed and money their idols and to say to hell with the people getting addicted and destroying themselves. So then, what are we to do? What does it mean for us in our day? Towards the end of Ephesians, he asked the church of Ephesus to pray. In verse 18, it says, And pray in the Spirit of, on all occasions, with all kinds of prayers and requests, with this in mind, be alert, and always keep on praying for all the Lord's people. Uh, Walter Wink, in his book, The Powers That Be, said this, Prayer that ignores the powers ends up blaming God for evils committed by the powers. But prayer that acknowledges the power become an indispensable aspect of social action. We must discern not only this outer 
political manifestation of the powers, but also their inner spirituality and lift the powers uh, to God for transformation. Otherwise, we change only the shell and leave the spirit intact. This is not merely thoughts and prayers. Wherever a tragedy strikes, you hear politicians or religious leaders saying thoughts and prayers. Um, and, and there is a sense of passivity uh, that allows evil to continue and, to, and for people to keep on hurting. And, and the way, it's sort of a way, you know, accepting the, the Satan's rule in some sense. And more recently, I think it's becoming a joke because thoughts and prayer doesn't even sound like hope anymore. It's just almost like wishful thinking. And I hope you're okay, but I may, I'm probably not going to do anything about it while you continue to suffer. There is no such thing as prayer alone. You cannot just pray and hope. That's not faith. That's not really prayer. Prayer is always the catalyst for change. It's the fuel for hope. It's been a little over 50 years that Martin Luther King Jr. was assassinated, and I think he understood this. He was killed while planning actually a massive um, campaign for the poor in Washington, D.C. As a young pastor, he made it a discipline to pray, and, and even when he became uh, very busy during his last years of his life, he would still take time to go away and to pray, to, t- to have a day set apart for him to help him in his fight for justice. Recently, there has been those uh, that have been fighting uh, for their lives and freedom throughout the world. Uh, you don't hear much about it in the news, but in Sudan, uh, I think over 100 people uh, died, were murdered uh, by the government just recently, and, and they paid the price with their life. You don't hear about it much, but there's also uh, of Hong Kong. Uh, China is putting a lot of pressure to bring Hong Kong uh, into China's control, uh, where they would lose a lot of freedom and independence. Uh, including religious freedom. And where Christians may have this sort of state-sanctioned churches led by state-approved priests, uh, like in the mainland. So these protesters are, trying to hope, are hoping to turn this around and have more freedom. And, it was, and I'm, I'm very much uh, summarizing this very simply. It's a lot more complex than that. But it was the beginning of the, this month, actually, that the protest turned violent. Um, and turned uh, where a group of Christians were sort of holding a public prayer meeting in front of the government building and and police through the night and started singing hallelujah to the Lord. And the hymn was actually picked up by other protesters. And even some non-Christians were singing this because it's easy to remember. There's only one line, sing hallelujah to the Lord. And so this video you will see, they were hoping to calm the police and bring peace But it was also a political protection uh, because according to the law, any religious assemblies in public are not considered legal. So people would sing together a hymn as a protection as well. So let me see. These people in Hong Kong are singing these songs and praying and opposing the forces of the power of this world. To pray and intercede is to stand in the gap and be an advocate. It's a spiritual defiance against what is currently happening. 
And it helps you to visualize a future where there's hope and no more pain and suffering. No more racism and hatred against humanity. No more starving children and nuclear weapons. And Jesus had promised that this day will come. So those who pray are believing the future into being, and we should not just wait. God has given us authority and power to bring his kingdom into existence now, to bring beauty and not chaos. As we get ready for communion, if you want to take some time uh, to pray, there's a, a prayer room to the right out the door to the left. Someone will be there to pray with you, or if you want to pray by yourself, that's fine. We do communion every week, and it's not a meaningless ritual, um, but a reminder of the sacrifice that Jesus made. In a world filled with hatred and chaos, here is something that's real, something you can eat, something you can drink that is both spiritual and physical, visible and invisible, to remind you of the sacrifice of Jesus and his victory over evil and how he now lives in you. Remember the new covenant, new Passover, as he remembers the body of Christ broken for you, blood of Christ shed for you. Uh, we do this in the memory of a sacrifice. Let me just end by saying this. As Paul describes prayer as a tool in the fight against the evil one, he is speaking of it as a catalyst for change. It is the fuel for the kingdom of God. Think about all the major issues, national and international. Uh, think about your own personal issues and relationship and family and marriage. There must be prayer for God's reign to come to earth, come into your relationship, come into you, the national issues as it is in heaven. And very much like how Jesus taught his disciples to pray for his kingdom to come to earth as it is in heaven, we must do the same. Let's pray. Dear God, teach us to pray that your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Teach us to pray with all the, the international, national um, chaos that's going on, that we pray your hope, your kingdom of God into being by declaring your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So I ask you to teach us, to, to compel us, to help us to be bold and courageous and not to be afraid that we will listen to you and that we will follow your voice and be a representative as image-bearing creation over your land. In the name of Jesus, I pray. Amen.